You're listening to the Science of the Local podcast with me, Hamish Clark. Today's interview features British journalist and author Johan Hari, uh, who is not a scientist, but who has written a book with a lot of science in it. Uh, he's written two books, actually. It's a really interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Science is real, from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real, from evolution to the Milky Way. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for writing uh, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. Oh, no, thank you very much. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, uh, I thought I might give you a, an opportunity to introduce yourself, if you like. So my name's Johan Hari. I'm a British journalist. I'm the author of uh, two books. One is called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And the most recent one is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Thank you very much. Makes my job easier. You're a journalist and a writer. Um, you've written some really interesting books, which is partly why I wanted to have you on the podcast, but also because you touch very closely on science in your books. And this is a, a community science podcast. So I guess I just wanted to have a chat with you about the books and your interactions on some levels with science. I guess the first thing I'll ask is scientists uh, in general do science uh, the science has an impact on the world, but it's not always because of stuff the scientists do when they're not in the lab. It's often uh, through decisions by politicians or through community movements or through uh, movements built by books such as yours. So I was just curious as to your take about the interaction between uh, science and society. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I was trained in the social sciences at Cambridge. That was the, the, the degree that I did. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I've always thought, you know, the social sciences are the most underrated part of science and that social scientists are some of the most kind of unsung mm. heroes, really. And this Preach. really, uh, the, yeah, the, the kind of research I did for, for both these books really underscored that for me, that, that, you know, the scientific method is something we don't just apply to, you know. I mean, you know, when, if you say picture a scientist, most people will picture... You know, Einstein, that. yeah, or, you know, picture Einstein, a physicist, or they picture, you know, exactly a white guy in a white lab, um, mm. a lab coat, all of which, you know, are really important parts of science. But, you know, psychology, sociology, anthropology, these are sciences as well. They're very sophisticated scientists. And, you know, sometimes people, I think, underrate, underrate the social sciences because they think, well, you know, uh, human society is really complex, so to study it scientifically is very difficult. But no one says, no one disputes the human brain is really complex. And no one would say, therefore, neuroscientists are less scientifically important than, than anyone else. But I think there's a deeper thing going on in the devaluing of the social sciences, which is, you know, when I was a kid, Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families, right? Yep. And you can probably guess I never liked Margaret Thatcher. But <laughs> I, you know, I realized how much I had internalized that myself. My most recent book is about depression and um, how depression has um, many causes, but a lot of them are social causes. Mm. Things mm. like loneliness, massive rise in people, uh, you know, becoming lonely, the epidemic nature of people finding their work meaningless. Yep, a whole range, yeah, exactly. A whole range of social causes. You know, I was acutely depressed for a long time. It never once occurred to me that there were social causes to my depression and anxiety. I didn't think about it. It didn't 
occurred to me and how I thought about how I would solve it, that in a sense, I was a kind of Thatcherite to my own pain. And I think one of the reasons why there's lots of things going on here, and I'm sure we'll talk about lots of them, but I think one of the reasons why there's been a real devaluing of the social causes of depression and anxiety is actually because we've really internalized that kind of Thatcherite, neoliberal idea that there's no such thing as society. It's like if you start talking about social causes in mm. a culture where we think only in terms of individuals, yep. um, actually, it's like speaking in Aramaic or something. People mm. just don't get. And actually, I, I, when I started talking about the book, I kept using this analogy and I've, I've stopped using it because I've mm. realized actually we're so far removed from understanding social causes. I would often say, you know, we all know that uh, there are social causes to obesity, right? Mm -hmm. The reason obesity has massively risen is not because people suddenly got lazy. Mm -hmm. It's not like Danish people uh, have energy and people in the United States are lazy. Mm -hmm. It's that there are social causes, right? Our food supply system has changed. It's impossible to walk around most cities now. You can't bike to work. There's a, uh, We mostly do jobs that involve sitting down mm -hmm. at desks. There's been a whole social range of social factors that have caused obesity to rise it's not just individual failing right hmm. i've had to stop doing that because whenever i would say that they're going yeah but fat people are lazy you know <laughs> like they would really instinctively shift it towards individually blaming people and i thought oh that analogy because we don't even acknowledge social causes for things like obesity where it couldn't be more obvious hmm. right just go to copenhagen and then go to Lexington and Kentucky. They're not different species, right? Mm. Um, and if someone moved from Copenhagen to Lexington and Kentucky, as you mentioned, that because it's a city in Kentucky that I know, uh, mm. um, <clears throat> you know, they, they would put on weight. But it's, it's a curious thing that we, we're so far removed from the insights of the social sciences. So in a sense, one of the things I try to do in my work is champion some of the most amazing social scientists I've got to know and some of the work they've done, which I think is, is so important. I'm obviously not a social scientist myself. I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. But, but, but uh, although I do have some. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that I think some of the things that I write about, I probably couldn't do if I hadn't had that background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'll give a, a quick shout out to a great social science podcast, actually, uh, which is called Social Science Bites. Um, I love them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've heard of it. Great little short conversations with all kinds of different social scientists, really engaging and um, just completely uh, like what you said, highlight some of the amazing and fascinating and varied work that gets done there. Yeah. And that's part of like a body of podcasts that's so excellent, like Philosophy Bites. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I know some of the guys who do that. Yeah. yeah no, in fact, you remind me, I haven't listened to that podcast in a while. Let's go back mm, to it. It's yes. also an excellent um Canadian podcast about social sciences. I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's really good. Um, okay. It'll come back to me in the course of our conversation. No There's worries. Yeah, we can stick some links podcasts. up on the website yeah. uh, when we when we find them for for listeners afterwards. Great. Um, so, uh, in your dealings then with these social scientists, um, how did they? get along with you were they anxious to talk to a, a science communicator or hesitant um how did that work i'm always amazed by how generous academics are with their time generally mm. like you know especially so i think one thing that's reassuring is um i always say to them uh, right up front i'll show you anything i quote from you and i'll show you everything i write about you mm -hmm. so that you can kind of tell me if i've understood you correctly i don't give them the power of veto they don't it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they yep. you know they can't change their quote if they've said something mm -hmm. uh, you know if, if they feel that they want to clarify what they say that's fine i can use a clarified quote instead but because i want to get it right and mm -hmm. because i want to understand <clears throat> uh genuinely want to understand where they're where they're coming from and most social scientists in my experience 
and all kinds of scientists I've ever interviewed are, are really keen to get their the message out. You know, it's a bit different too, actually. Funny enough, in, I was a newspaper columnist for a long time. Mm-hmm. One thing that surprised me was, um, and it may be because of the, the because they feel under siege in a way social scientists don't. But mm-hmm. I would write a lot about global warming, mm-hmm. and actually, curiously enough, those science, although there are some absolutely brilliant. Um, environmental um you know some scientists oh, who looked into warming who, who were really yep. keen to get the message out um i was surprised but they were much more cautious and cagey i suppose it is because they are and not all of them there's a wonderful one called simon lewis for example who's got a new book coming out i'm really excited to read but mm-hmm. the 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 they were. I guess it is just because look, they've got this horrendous organised lobby yeah, trying to attack them at every turn. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it must be like being a tobacco scientist in the sixties or something to them. <laughs> you know. Be. It could be. Yeah. Or rather, a scientist study the effects of tobacco. Obviously, not not, not, a, not a tobacco <laughs> lobbyist. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, okay. So they were keen to talk to you. Um, they thought it might help them get their message out, perhaps. I think so, and I think also, more importantly, I think they do the work partly because to a large degree because they actually care about the society and the people mm-hmm. that they're they're looking at and so what they i mean I, it's shocking to me how little public policy is informed by social science mm. um because i mean it's you know <clears throat> uh i mean it's there's not no influence but it mm-hmm. should be much much greater than it is you know i mean it's very, a very often, mysterious influence to me i mean social science is uh are probably in a different field, but even uh, other sciences, uh, there are some cases where the, there's a clear influence and there's many cases where there's not. And trying to pin down why some does have an influence and why some doesn't is a, a fascinating and tricky question. Yeah, and I think, you know, even things that are couldn't be more consequential, there's an excellent British journalist called Nick Davies mm-hmm. who wrote a book called The Schools Report, and um, an excellent book. And an amazing, you know, he looked at it, it's in the 1980s in Britain, there was this big redesigning of how the school system worked by the Tories, led by this politician called Kenneth Baker. Mm-hmm. And Ben, sorry, and uh, Nick Davies um, kind of just looked at, you know, well, what's, what science did they look at in relation to how they were going to redesign the whole school system, given there's a lot of evidence about what works in education and what doesn't. <laughs> and there was literally nothing. I mean, literally, they, they mocked the idea of looking at social science. It was all kind of, you know, well, I went to school and I hated this and I liked oh, this. And yeah. it was literally, and you think, well, it's not education. It's not a trivial thing. It determines mm-hmm. the entire future of the country. Yes. Yep. And the idea that you could have that debate with no reference whatsoever to to the enormous body. And actually, it's one of the most detailed and, and, um, and best bodies of social science we've got is education policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, that's an extreme end of the wedge, but... Mm. But so I really admire people like my friend whose work I'm sure you know, Dr. Ben Goldacre, who does a lot of work in terms of trying to think about how we can integrate some of these insights more into. Uh, he did a very good documentary for BBC Radio 4 that people can look up about how I we think can I get. I might have seen him on Twitter. Yeah, possible? yeah, yeah. He's huge on Twitter. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How we can get more of these insights into um, policy making. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's an issue that's close to my heart. I, I worked in the, the New South Wales government for many years, um, and uh, I'm, I'm in academia now, but I still uh, think a lot about yeah, how it is that some science gets used and some science doesn't. And I think that there's so many different pathways, um, but there's an increasing number of scientists that are interested in, in those things beyond what they're studying now. They're interested in communicating with the public and engaging with decision makers politicians and things like that so well i think it's a lot of it i think that you're the question you're asking is so important because i think a lot of it is related to 
social it's so about social movements. If we think mm-hmm. about so I just watched this incredible <clears throat> this period I'm really interested in anyway, but mm. a, a wonderful French film called um hundred and twenty beats per minute, which is the story of act up in the the kind of um the movement of um, HIV positive people mm-hmm. and uh, people who love them mm-hmm. that were in that that period before kind of antiretrovirals come on come come on stream yep. where demanding kind of you know immediate action and I've actually interviewed some of the people who were in French act up for the French edition of um, my book chasing the scream it's oh, called right. prima de Stupe. and, and it, <laughs> to me that's that's a really extraordinary model it's a, a wonderful documentary and book called how to survive a plague people are interested in the american part of that movement but to me that's a really interesting model because what you had there was really really good science like really detailed science scientists and who engaged in a democratic spirit with people who were fighting literally for their lives mm-hmm. who then which then led to changes in the way pharmaceutical companies worked in all sorts of things and to me in a sense that's a model I mean, I think ACT UP and the AIDS movement, and one of the things that's so great about the film is that it presents the, the debate and the range of people in that. There were people who argued for more direct action, there were people who argued for working inside the system, and neither mm-hmm. is presented mm-hmm. as the kind of good guys or bad guys in the way they would be in a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to me, that's, that's, so, that's so important. I think where scientists want to... I think there's... How would I put it? It's absolutely right that scientists are committed to a model of objectivity and how they find their results, right? Mm -hmm. That's really important. That's an essential part of science and the scientific method. But once you know the truth, once using that method of objectivity, you have discovered the truth as best you can, I think there's then a... And it won't be for all scientists, clearly, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a really strong case for scientists then being engaged citizens and saying, well, now that we have objectively determined these really important facts... Mm -hmm. We need, it's not a surrender of that objectivity to then mm. pressure politicians and existing power structures to act on what those insights tell us we must do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's 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 really important. And actually, it's a funny thing. Yeah, you know, even if we think about, yeah, funny we mentioned Margaret Thatcher. As you know, I can't stand Margaret Thatcher, but mm-hmm. the the you know, actually, the British reaction to the AIDS crisis was fairly good. Actually, some papers have been released recently showing that Thatcher held off on various things and she mm-hmm. was not good on education for gay kids in schools which was disgraceful but mm. but actually things like needle exchanges um those kinds of things we actually did very quickly in britain compared to other countries like france where it was an absolute disgrace or the united mm. states where ronald reagan didn't even say the na- the right. word aids as okay. president um and i think that is partly because thatcher had training as a scientist and because we had good and also because she just knew it would cost a fortune to the health system mm-hmm. um so you know there's, there's circumstances where you know pressure married with we should have more politicians who just know something about science you know mm, mm. yeah so um so coming back to your books then um yeah. it sounds like you're seeing an impact from the books uh, what's that been like from your perspective to uh to, to write something you know about such an important social issue or multiple social issues but the draws on science and then is, is is having an impact well i would relate it to the insight about scientists um mm. which is books only have impact in the context of social movements mm. um, or, i mean i don't mean fiction or something but i mean books about political and social causes yeah. so it's been incredibly moving to me that um so if you think about my first book, Chasing the Scream, which was 
about the war on drugs and and a um, big part of it is about addiction and how we need to think differently about addiction mm-hmm. and um at the you know this is a personal thing for me we had a lot of addiction in my family one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to I didn't mm-hmm. understand why then but as i got older i realized we had addiction mm-hmm. in my family and and um so i spent a lot of time looking at the science of addiction and um, one of the most heroic social scientists, one of the most heroic people I've ever known, is a man called Professor Bruce Alexander, who who did this this experiment in the 70s that that led to a I think should have led to and is leading to a kind of paradigm shift in how we think about addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so he, he he I went to go and, when I first went to spend time with him in Vancouver and I've done that lots of times now. But the he he you know he explained to me that so most the theory of addiction that most of us have in our heads is what's known as the chemical hooks theory of addiction. Mm-hmm. So we think, if you think about heroin addiction, for example, which is close to me, um, we think, you know, why why does someone become, if you said, why why does someone become a heroin addict? Yeah, they're uh, exposed to the chemical, yeah, they become hooked exactly. and, and that's it. Mm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems so obvious to people that it would be, you know, it would almost seem like a stupid question, right? That heroin mm-hmm. addiction is caused by heroin. Um, uh, but, but in the 70s, Professor Alexander did this this interesting experiment. He, so he explained that th- this theory about chemical hooks, which is not entirely false, by the way. It's just a small mm, part of the picture. Part of the picture, that's right. Yeah, uh, and not the biggest part of the picture. This theory comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century, which are really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. Mm-hmm. You take a rat. You put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and kill itself within a couple of weeks. So there you go. That's our story. But but, the the chemical takes you over and destroys you. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander was looking at these experiments. He was actually working with people with serious addiction problems in the downtown east side of Vancouver. and he thought there was something not right about this. So he, he did this experiment uh, where he built a cage uh, called, he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got yep. loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. They've got loads of cheese. It's not actually cheese. It's a grain. Okay. Uh, which apparently, rat, apparently it's a myth that rats particularly like cheese. Uh, oh, loads of colored balls. Myth busting. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they try both. They don't know what's in them. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. Hmm. They almost never use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and death when they don't have the things that make life meaningful for rats to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life meaningful for rats. There's been a huge body of hum- human research into this that I can talk about if you like. But hmm. to me, this tells us the, the, the core of, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is, is connection. Mm, mm. The core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And one mm. of the things, plenty of other people have written about Rat Park. I was not um, originalist, but one of the things I am pleased is that my book helped to popularize this and and, and uh, helped to popularize this experiment has led to a renaissance in interest in Professor Alexander's work mm-hmm. and some of the things that it subsequently led to, like helped to inform the decriminalization of all drugs in Portugal, which had an incredible effect yeah, to me. Yeah, that's an amazing part of, of the it's book. A, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's such a fascinating, I love, I mean, what happened in Portugal is amazing and mm. incredibly moving, but to me what's what's been so interesting is 
as a journalist going and spending time with Professor Alexander, who's one of the many people I write about in Chasing the Screen, and then being able to kind of, I always think the most exciting thing about journalism is to be able to go to people and say, hey, something really interesting has happened. Let me tell you about it. Right? That's the great joy of being a journalist. You get to go and find out something interesting and then tell other people that interesting thing. Hmm. And sometimes, you know, and this happened to me sometimes, various times in my career, you know, it really gets gets wind and people are like, oh, what? I'm really glad I know this. And people then use it as a tool. And I think what's interesting is why why does Rat Park – so Bruce discovers that, Rat Park, in 1974, right? Yeah, why does ago. it take – yeah, a long time ago. Hmm. And it did intermittently over the years get – get. I certainly didn't kind of you know rediscover it. It got written about intermittent times over the years. Why does it take off? Why 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 does it take it take off when 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 I communicate it? Mm-hmm. It's not because of something particular about me. Mm-hmm. It's because by that point there had been a significant social change of people. There'd been a significant shift in consciousness towards greater compassion towards people with addiction problems mm-hmm. for all sorts of reasons. Some of that's cultural. Some of that's political, some of that's direct organizing. Actually, Bruce is, you know, knows very well the incredible drug user movement that happened in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's mm-hmm. been this, yeah, so there's, so I think it's, you, you can see how um, that, that's another in, instance of how a social movement or a series of, so, of deep cultural changes mm. towards a more compassionate culture in all sorts of ways, actually. Um, Makes people more ready to hear that message. Exactly, that the scientific, mm. scientific insights are absorbed or rejected in, in, a, in a social context, mm. a social context that's created by social movements and by other forces like corporations and you know, more malign forces. Yeah, and I think that, mm. exactly, and, and to me this has been a real, it's been a real kind of education for me in thinking about, you know, what is the context in which science is accepted or rejected and how do we, how do we, um, what social changes can we make that will make people more receptive to scientific evidence and insights? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, we'll have to leave that for another podcast, though. Can I ask you, um, are you, are you working on anything at the moment? Mm. So, funny enough, related to science, although this is a... Uh, so I'm writing a biography with his cooperation of Noam Chomsky. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to think of a more influential or consequential yeah, life. So obviously, no I'm trying... <laughs> so I'm trying to really I mean I've been working on it for about five years now and I've, okay. been, I've been concentrating mostly on getting just interviewing everyone in his life because mm-hmm. I was conscious you know look you know if I wait five ten years mm-hmm. a lot of these people won't be around they're mm-hmm. in their 80s and 90s so I've done about got about 300 interviews now and um, we'll do some more in Australia actually with some people okay. some friends of gnomes and allies yeah. so Partly that and a few other subjects as well. I mean, there's one very much related to the topic we're talking about. I'm really interested in how people change, how mm-hmm. people change their minds, how people change how they think about things. So I've been researching a book about that for a while, but it takes me right. ages to research and write. It takes about three years to write a book. So uh, I take my hat off to you. It's, it's taken <laughs> me a lot longer than that to write notebooks. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for the work that you've done and that you're doing. Oh, no, thank you. Um, I got another question. How did you get all those blurbs for uh, <laughs> for Lost Connections? My God. Um, yeah, most of them. I think people think it's kind of uh, people I know. Most, <laughs> I don't know that many famous people. They're not, <laughs> they're not people I know. So it's mostly just, um, you know, the book being got to people through various ways. So it was kind mm. of weird experience. Like 
Hillary Clinton writing mm. me this really nice letter about it or various people I've never I don't know. Brian Clinton, Aino, I you know. think I saw. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd never yeah. met him when he when he wrote the blurb for the book, although I have subsequently uh, yeah. met him. Okay. Um, He's going to produce yeah. your next album. <laughs> He's an amazing. Funny enough, I had a really interesting scientific conversation there. I hadn't met him at the point where she praised the book, but I, mm-hmm. to thank him, I subsequently went to go and see him. Mm. And he's doing this really fascinating work with them. Um, I'm not sure if I can talk about this, but okay. the, with AI and wow. music, I can't really okay. say yeah. much more than that. But yeah, yeah. He, yeah. so I was just very. Mm. I, but I think the thing that has been very interesting to me about the range of responses. So, for example, the book got praised by Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. the leading host on Fox News, Tucker Carlson, who, as you can imagine, has very different <laughs> politics to me. And and Naomi Klein, who's a kind of leading yep. lefty yep. writer. And to me, that's been such an interesting thing to see the range of people across the political spectrum who've engaged with this. And again, I don't think it's something particular about me. I think it's something about the subject that mm-hmm. people can see there's something we've been getting wrong mm. about the debate about depression and anxiety. It's just really refreshing to have a, a different way of looking that kind of transcend, transcends those tired old arguments. I, th- I think so. The... the, the, the you know, part of the core of what I learned is, you know, that, how would I put it? Everyone listening to your show knows that they've got natural kind of physical needs, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, you need food and water and clean air and shelter. If I took them away from mm-hmm. you, you'd be in, obviously in trouble really quickly. But there's equally strong evidence that human beings have, nat- from the social sciences, that human beings have natural psychological needs, right? You need to feel you belong. Mm-hmm. You need to feel that your life has meaning and purpose. Yeah. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm, I'm glad to be alive today, but uh, genuinely, but our, yeah. our, our for all sorts of reasons. But our culture has been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And it's certainly not the only factor in depression. There are real biological aspects. Mm-hmm. There are other psychological factors going on. But I, I think the reason why this epidemic is rising so much is because we have uh, we, we created a culture that is not meeting people's deep psychological needs in all sorts of complex ways um, and so part of the book is about well what's the evidence for that what are the real causes of depression and anxiety and how do we how do we build solutions based on those causes because up to now and this is a real failure of science education I think mm. um, which again has happened in a context determined by social forces mm-hmm. is we've told people a grossly simplistic story about what causes depression mm-hmm. um, you know we've overwhelmingly t- I mean when I went to my doctor when I was a teenager mm-hmm. all I was right, told yeah. was there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains some people are naturally lacking it you're one of them that's why you feel this way all you need to do is drug yourself right I mean and funny enough one of my nephews friends uh, he's very depressed. He went mm. to the doctor a couple of months ago. He was told almost exactly the same story, oh, except dear. this time he was told it was about dopamine. Right? Okay. <laughs> they said serotonin, they said dopamine. And I thought, wow, in 20 years we've made the mm-hmm. progress from calling it serotonin imbalance, calling it dopamine imbalance. And, 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 you know, to me the most terrible thing about it's not that, there, of course, there are real biological contributors to depression and anxiety, mm. and I write about them in Lost Connections, but to me the most terrible thing about that story is what it says to people is that their pain is meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. It just says well, your pain is like a glitch in a computer program. Mm-hmm. But actually, there's so much evidence from psychology and the social sciences that we are depressed and anxious. This epidemic is happening for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And I go through the reasons in the book. They're perfectly understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. Things like massive rise in loneliness. And 
And if you tell people their pain is meaningless, what you do is you cut them off. You cut them off as individuals from understanding the sources of their pain and finding solutions. But even more importantly, you cut the society off from understanding the sources of, of, of its pain and finding kind of collective solutions. Mm. And that is a real disaster. And it doesn't have to happen. And that's that's a failure of science communication. Again, it happened in a context, mm, all sure. sorts of things going on, the kind of rise of the kind of Thatcherite individualism that we were talking about, but also, you know, the, an enormous campaign by the pharmaceutical companies uh, to promote this simplistic narrative at the expense of more honest and nuanced ways of thinking about depression for obvious reasons, and that's no more, it's not a conspiracy to mm. say that GlaxoSmithKline want you to buy their products any more than sure. it's a conspiracy to say KFC wants you to buy fried chicken. I mean, it's just a, an obvious statement of the truth. And they've um, got resources to amplify that message. Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and of course, that happens in a context that's not just about the pharmaceutical companies. There's a whole range of things going on there. But, mm. but so, so the book is about the need to have a more nuanced, scientifically based understanding of what's causing the depression and anxiety epidemic, and then how we can how we can solve it. Yeah, well, I think opening up that conversation about what our needs really are, our range of needs, yeah. and how we can meet them is a, is a great one to have. That's probably a good place to leave it. I'd love to keep talking oh. to you, but um, uh, thank you so much for your time, Johan. Oh, thanks so much, Hamish. And my publishers have told me to say at the end of interviews, and it always makes me feel like a cheesy 1950s <laughs> advertising person. If any of you would like any more information about the book, if you'd like to, or where you get the book, or the audio book, if you'd like to see what a range of people from Hillary Clinton to Glenn Greenwald have said about the book, if you'd like to hear audio of the interviews with the social scientists we've been talking about, or if you want to take a quiz to see how much you know about the real causes of depression and anxiety, you can go to www.thelostconnections.com. It's not lostconnections.com because it no. turns out there's a band called lostconnections.com, which no one told me about, um, slightly annoyingly. Uh, so, yeah, um, yeah, it's thelostconnections.com. Great. Thank you. We'll put those links up for our listeners. And thanks again for your time and enjoy oh, the rest geez, of your Oh, Hamish, really enjoyed that. And thank you for the work you're doing. It's really important. Thank you. You've been listening to the Science of the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash scienceofthelocal, and all good podcast providers. Science of the Local is not just a podcast, it's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists, delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to facebook.com slash scienceatthelocal. Science of the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Winmalee Neighbourhood Centres and in 2017 by the Inspiring Australia Program of the Australian Government. By listening to this podcast, you accept our end-user licence agreement. Science is real from the-